This week's podcast is brought to you by MASV, the fastest way to send and receive massive video files. Send uncompressed dailies, lock pictures, DCPs, and more with MASV. Keep listening to hear how you can receive 100 gigs for free towards your next transfer. Your mission is to destroy every trace of something known only as Project Starfish. Any questions? Starfish is a slang term for a butthole. Think there's any connection? No. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the new podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Fred Raskin and Chris Wagner. Fred has edited such phenomenal films as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for which he was nominated for the Eddie and the BAFTA, Django Unchained, for which he was nominated for the BAFTA, Guardians of the Galaxy, for which he was nominated for the Eddie, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and The Hateful Eight. Chris has edited such spectacles as Furious 7, Face Off, Total Recall, Man on Fire, and True Romance. The pair previously worked together on both Fast and Furious and Fast Five, and now have collaborated for a third time on one of the most highly anticipated films of the summer, the hugely entertaining The Suicide Squad. Well, thanks guys so much for joining me today. I just, I love the film. It was such a blast. It was so much fun. And I'm really excited to talk to you guys about it. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, we're happy to be here. So, Fred, this is your third collaboration with uh, James Gunn. How did you two end up working together? So we first worked together in um, the spring of 1995. I was the apprentice editor on the first movie that James wrote, Tromeo and Juliet. Wow. And we just kind of kept running into each other at different parties and events. And when he was prepping the, the first Guardians, I had just finished Django Unchained and he emailed me and said, I'm getting ready to make this movie for Marvel and I would love for you to read the script and come to London and work on it with me. I will admit, I, I was actually a little frightened because all I knew about the movie was it, it had a talking raccoon and a walking tree in it. <laughs> Um, and it sounded like this could be the most horrible movie ever made. Like it really had that potential. And I actually resisted reading, reading the script for a little while. I also had another movie that a friend of mine was prepping that I was intending to cut and that ended up falling apart. So I sat down and I read the script and I got about 30 pages in before I was completely and totally hooked. Uh, by the time I got to the end, I had a lump in my throat and I like immediately wrote James and I was like, count me in. Let's do this. Awesome. And Chris, how did you end up joining the team? Fred and I had done two movies together and got a, along very, very well. And then Quentin stole him away from uh, being anywhere near me. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I was so happy. And But I always kept in touch with Fred because on top of everything else, he's a great friend. So we always kept in touch. And he called me early November of 2019 and said, I'm looking at this guy for a second editor. And what do you think of him? And I said, well, I think he's very good, but I think I'm better. <laughs> I, I don't want the podcast to think that I'm I'm an arrogant person, 
But I said it in jest to Fred because Fred knows my jokes. And uh, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'll come down to Atlanta. And I was supposed to be on it for five or six weeks. And I think I wrapped after a year of work. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> James's shooting style changed dramatically for this movie, and I was used to the way he'd shot for the Guardians movies, which was, for the most part, not exactly traditional coverage, but it was very well planned out. It was mostly one or two cameras, and on the first Guardians, there was one scene where Star-Lord comes up with 12% of a plan that was shot with four cameras, and he shot 12 hours worth of footage on this four-and-a-half-minute scene. Oh. And that ended up being the shooting style that he adopted for this entire movie. <laughs> and so after, after thinking, okay, I can probably handle this on my own, about three weeks in, I was completely buried in footage. And I called one of the producers and I was like, yeah, I'm going to fall way behind. We, we really need to, need to get someone else in here. So they'd recommended someone, like they came up with, the studio came up with a list of names and one of the people who they recommended is someone who Chris had worked with. So I called him for a recommendation and yeah, like you said, he was like, well, wh why not me? <laughs> mm -hmm. That's excellent. The greedy man that I am. Do you think there's a reason why James decided to shoot that way for this particular movie? Or is that just how he's adapting as a director? Well, in this particular case, anyway, it's going for the vibe of a 60s war movie. And I think the kind of rough and tumble cinema verite feel of war movies in general was the guiding stylistic idea. Very um, cool. Not to simplify it, but it seems like the Guardians movies are big, but it's a lot of stage work. Yes, and a lot of the wide shots in the Guardians movies are fully digital shots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, yeah. Um, there's a practical element for almost everything. So he was able to roll a, a bunch of cameras and get the scene that, that he had in his head. Um, and it always does have a journalistic feel to it, like a run-and-gun type thing, and that's even the superhero's style. There's much more run-and-gun, let's make it up as we go along, rather than having a plan. Right. <laughs> There's an immediacy to it that takes this crazy over-the-top genre and in some strange way makes it real. Yeah, yeah, and on that topic, what was the greatest experience for me, I think it's been about 10 years where I have sat in a screening room and watched dailies with a director. And James did that every single night, and it oh, is wow. such a blessing for an mm -hmm. editor and have him point and screen and say, oh, I love that, and I love that. And it takes a lot of the guesswork out. So... They must have been shooting for many hours, and then it sounds like you had hours of dailies to watch. How long were those days? I mean, well, the daily screenings that we would do, we might have gotten in five hours worth of footage, but James would go through it in about 20 minutes. Um, oh, okay. Like, like, let's start with the last take. Actually, I think it was the second to last. That, that he would want to see. And he would frequently say, okay, let's jump ahead. The poor person running the Avid in the screening room had to really be on their toes. Wow. And how did you guys divvy up the work? There were a handful of sequences that I knew from reading the script that I was like, I really want to do these particular sequences. And the finale of the movie was massive. So I knew that I wanted to cut that in half and have Chris handled the first half and, and me handled the second. And then the rest of it was just kind of like, as the footage came in, whoever wasn't working on anything, hey, uh, can, you, can you take this scene? When you were working with James and recutting, did you just work on your own sequences or did you throw them back and forth to each other? How, how did that work? 
it was such a great thing, and it always has been with Fred, is that w- when I cut a scene, I'll have Fred come in and say, what do you think? And Fred will do the same with me, and we kind of gave notes to each other during the course of the shoot. But once we had finished the cut, we stuck to our own scenes. I always think it's interesting when I hear editors recut each other because one of you guys really knows the footage because you did the assembly, and one of you doesn't. I don't find there to be a lot of advantageous benefits to passing stuff back and forth. Number one, because yes, my scenes, I absolutely knew the footage and Fred absolutely knew his footage. Even though Fred and I are so gracious with each other and friendly and loving and all that stuff, it's a little weird to give your scene to somebody else. Sure. The thing that I was just going to add to that is there's something about keeping each editor to their own scenes that does give you a stronger feeling of ownership over those scenes mm-hmm. and, and the mm-hmm. movie in general. I've found when working on movies where you're passing stuff back and forth, you do start to get a little disconnected from the material. Well, you understand the characters, you understand the motivations for that scene and not that somebody who takes that scene over doesn't, but you understand exactly what choices you were making and why you were making them And the person who's taking that over might not know exactly why you made that cut and why you made that decision. There's also some very beautiful times in your careers. I said it to Fred the other day and he laughed, but when I cut True Romance, the Sicilian scene with Walken and Hopper. One of my favorite scenes of all time, by the way. (laughs) You're not alone. (laughs) Was cut by me and Tony loved it and he tried some different things. And initially it went straight back to the way it was in the first cut. And the same thing happened with Fred, with the Justin Gigolo, I call it the flower fight. Mm -hmm. And Fred had said, I want that scene. And he shut his door and went in there and and cut that thing to perfection. And if I'm wrong, Fred, I don't think there were many changes from your first cut. No, I mean, there were were a few little twists. Yeah, but I think those were for visual effects purposes, really. I mean, he showed up to me. I was like, I I felt like a beginner. I was like, what am I doing on this film? Because Fred has got this handled. It was really, really beautifully done. It's a phenomenal scene. And it was something I wanted to talk to you guys about because it was just so tour de force editorially. It feels like the dance rather than an action scene where you chose to speed ramp, where you chose not to. The choices of the different shots just go together so well. You just get to the end of that scene and you want to watch it again because it's just <laughs> so beautifully crafted. It yeah, really is. I'm really proud of that. And, and that was a rarity for the movie. And that was one of the few sequences that wasn't prevised ahead of time. James actually talked about this at the premiere. He talked to the stunt coordinator and said... This is the scene where you earn your paycheck. (laughs) I I, want to see what you can come up with. And and they really delivered. But whenever anything is previsible, you feel a little bit like your hands are tied to some degree because Mm -hmm. there there was a plan. And and James, with his previs, he works really intensely to get the previs exactly the way he wants it to be. To the point that when when I'm cutting a sequence that's been previsible, I'll always try something that deviates from the previs and will frequently give me a note not not to say, look at the previs and make it that way, but he'll have me actually taking it back to exactly the way it was in the previs um, because, <laughs> because he had so thoroughly planned out how he wanted mm-hmm. it to be. He just knew in his head the way, the way he wanted to play. With the Harley escape sequence, he came up with really cool shots on the day, but it wasn't fully planned out. 
And so having the ability to really just get in there and play with the material and, and turn it into something that was really exciting and incredibly violent and just, just a whole lot of fun, it was just a great opportunity. So in some of these action sequences, are they being shot at 24 or 48 or like 210 frames a second? And tell me about choosing when to, to go into slow-mo and high speed it and slow it down and stuff like that. It really depended on the sequence. With the Harley escape scene, it's only in, in the back half when she starts firing the machine gun and the flowers are coming out that James was shooting in slow-mo. I think the majority of the sequence prior to that was all shot at 24. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of when she starts coming down the hallway and she's walking in slow-mo that he was shooting, I, I, I want to say, 72 frames per second but I might be making that up and just kind of figuring out how we were going to get into that by ramping. I mean, that was some of the fun of putting it together. And, and of course, like we've got the song playing behind it. One of the ways in which it did change is I did a bunch of music editing to get the chorus to line up with some key moments in the sequence and the flowers burst forth behind Harley right when the chorus hits. Mm -hmm. um, and was the choice to do the animation and the flowers, was that planned ahead of time or was that something that you guys came up with in the edit? something that James always had in his head. And like he talked about it with us, even I think when we were watching the dailies, but we didn't really have any particular guide as far as how that was going to happen. And, and, and that was part of the process of working with the visual effects team. Speaking uh, of which, and I know that we'll get on the subject, I have to say that Kelvin McElwain, I think he pronounces it McElvain. I don't know. I just call him Kelvin. But uh, <laughs> we've done a bunch of movies together. He has just really risen to the top of the heap. He is the hardest working, really, really talented man. When I saw it up on the big screen, I was just in awe. I was like, is Starro going to be okay? Is King Shark going to be okay? And I was so impressed. And working on a movie like this, there often are times when your note is, it just doesn't quite look real. When it was up to Kelvin to figure that out. <laughs> and it's tricky because it's almost hyper real. You want it to be real, but you also want it to be zany and out there at the same time. So that's actually much harder than it sounds. It's actually very difficult to make it believable, but yet push the boundaries of where you're going with stuff. It was certainly a delicate balance, but I think they, they struck it beautifully. That's great. Well, speaking of Gunn, he loves to subvert expectations, and he does that throughout this whole film in a, in a big way. And I just love how you guys set up the beginning of the movie where you just feel like this is the classic superhero tale with the team assembling, and you guys have the classic cliche shot of the heroes walking forward with the American flag behind them. Tell me about subverting the audience's expectations. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it all really comes back to the script. It was all scripted that way. That was the thing that I initially most responded to is how clever the structure is. Because there are two points in the movie where we jump back in time and the way the first battle sequence plays out, then we introduce team two and then we go to three days earlier. Like, I just, I just thought that was incredibly clever. One of the things that happened through the editorial process is the, the way it was scripted and the way it had initially been cut, we saw a very quick montage of the battle on the beach through different angles than we'd seen it from to kind of recap what we'd seen already. But we found that 
that little montage was not only unnecessary, but also actually maybe a little confusing. It's only a few minutes later that we go back to, to Harley and Javelin on the beach, and we were able to, to connect the dots ourselves. Sure. It's kind of nice because you see what happens to certain members of the first team, but some of them, it's left up to our imagination what happened. Mm -hmm. And you don't get back to that for a few minutes, but it's kind of nice keeping that mystery and then showing Javelin and Harley. Again, that subverts expectations with Javelin, spoiler alert, taking his last breath and Harley looking at him like, oh no, this person who I could have loved. And then she slaps him in the face. <laughs> and the timing that you guys have is just perfect. I mean, well, she, we, we she's great too. into that with the music. <laughs> but yes, no, her, her timing was fantastic. I mean, James obviously knew what he was doing when he directed her in that scene. Um, but, but she's, I mean, she was game for everything. And even when we were using temp music, it was, let's find the saddest cue that we can find <laughs> to really tug at the heartstrings and, and literally have her slap, cut it off. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I love also before that with the mission, everybody's jumping into the water and it's exciting. And then Weasel falls in <laughs> and you guys pull out all the music, like the music stops. <laughs> and because of that, it totally throws you. <laughs> It was all part of the plan. Yeah, I mean, I love the the way Weasel is handled. <laughs> but I, I know you're probably intending to talk about this later, but because of the pandemic, we did not have a normal test screening process. We did a couple of test screenings, I think, in Las Vegas, where none of the creatives were in attendance because we all feared for our lives. Um, <laughs> so how much we could really trust the data that came out of that that screening is kind of anybody's guess. Did they film the audience to get a sense of that? Or how did you they guys did. analyze the data? So they did film the audience, about half of whom were masked and half of whom Oh, that's were right. You're not going to really see their faces. <laughs> <laughs> and the other half were far enough away from the, from the camera that couldn't really make heads or tails out of their reaction. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was a mic in the audience, so you could get some sense as to when they were laughing. But yeah, it, w it was not the most valuable thing. And I think the numbers were fine, but not really glowing. And it really was not until the premiere a couple nights ago that I got to watch this movie with an audience. And that weasel stuff plays like gangbusters. And this is the first movie I've worked on in a really long time where I have not uh, attended any audience screenings prior to its release. So a lot of this was just going with our guts and what, what felt right. And so like, it really wasn't until reviews started coming out that we actually had a sense as to how this movie is playing for people. So that was, that was a very pleasant surprise. Well, I think with a, a movie like this, if you're expecting your typical superhero movie, you might be disappointed because one of the things that James is doing is flipping the genre on its head. And if you're not ready for that kind of ride, you might initially think, I want my superheroes to be super. And these guys are down and dirty. And it, like I said, it's completely subverting your expectations. But I think that that's what makes it so brilliant. I mean, there, there's, there's really nothing quite like it. Obviously, it's using those 60s men on a mission movies like The Dirty Dozen or Guns of Navarone as its jumping off point, but then putting superpowered characters and giant walking starfish into that genre. Yeah, um, and I'm sure that people got a taste with the Guardians movies, but I think that James pushes it much further here.
when the mission goes horribly wrong, I, I love you guys playing the Jim Carroll bands, all the people who died. It's just brilliant. It's well, that so was scripted. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, how many of these songs are things that James is choosing ahead of time? Because his movies are very music-driven. I would say 90% of the song selections are in the script. And I'm quite certain that oh, we'll call it the romance scene between Harley and the president of Luna. Maltese. Mm-hmm. That was certainly scripted. James's flair for songs, it's very evident. He's brilliant. When I work on movies, I, I do the temp score, and I would never in my life think to use these songs that I had certainly never heard. And the song that played during, what was that song, Fred? Whistle for the Choir. Uh, whistle for the Choir, yeah. Yes. Uh, the Fratellis. I, I, don't, I don't know how popular that is with people, but uh, when I heard it, I was like, Wow, I'm not in love with this song. And then after I cut the scene, I'm like, I'm in love with this song. <laughs> so well, One of the things that works so well about that song, too, is that it comes back in. Hmm. That scene, it's cut really well. It starts very serious and gets more and more ridiculous. And then it cuts out very hard. And then we have this dialogue sequence. And then they go into this makeout session and the song just picks right up again. Well, listen, James knows what he's doing all across the board when it comes to songs. And did he say in the script, we come back in with the song, or was it something that you guys chose? Actually, I I remember cutting that scene, and I didn't know whether or not he wanted to go from it being scores, uh, a source and score kind of feel, where it's playing fully and then a futzed stereo background thing for the dialogue and then come back in full and he was like, no, 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 I want to, I want to go completely out, and then I want to come back here. And- but at one point, it, it, it does get fussed. Um, yes. Like, it feels like it's coming from, like, a radio in the room. I think it's it maybe right before they kiss. Yes, exactly. So it's it almost like full- she's hearing it through a radio in the background, and then it just becomes high fidelity in her head. Which, awesome. by the way, is it's probably pretty soon going to become a thing of the past where you futz music because there's not a music system in any house or any car right now that sounds futzed. It's true, <laughs> and yet it's so fun to play with futz. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> if, if I can take a moment to complain a bit, I'd really like it if the Avid had more options than telephone A and telephone B. I know, exactly. <laughs> I, I have to say, it's like, okay, what are we going to put on? Oh, telephone A, Okay. <laughs> Let's try Telephone B. No, that doesn't sound so good. Let's go back to Telephone A. <laughs> like, where's radio or TV? <laughs> Actually, Fred, if you pull up the expanded equalizer, you could you could really start playing with that stuff. Oh, yeah. No, I know. But, yeah. <laughs> That's but, it's easier, but, but, but the quick way is just to yeah. throw on that plug-in. <laughs> Actually, I'm doing a movie right now where there's a lot of futz dialogue because it's, it, there's a lot of telephone conversations, and I put this special futz that I made. When you make those futzes, you just drag the icon into your work bin and say, okay, this is, I call it a CW special futz, and you just you can drag that on anytime you want to. So I, I understand. You need Fred. to copyright that CW futz. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure many people have done it too. So I, 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 I'm not claiming anything original here. <laughs> Chris will sell that to your listeners. <laughs> when you're dealing with four to eight K footage, you're dealing with massive files and massive files call for MASV. MASV spelled M A S V is a file sharing solution for the modern post-professional. 
Tired of data caps and bubble-wrapped hard drives? Simply create an account to quickly transfer terabytes of data over the cloud. MESV's pay-as-you-go model means you only pay for what you need, and there are virtually no limits to the size of the file you can share. Send uncompressed videos to teams around the world and speed up your production cycle. If you sign up today at massive.io backslash AOTF, you can get 100 gigs free towards your transfer. That's massive.io backslash AOTF for 100 gigs free. What were the differences between working with Marvel and DC? Because this movie was made during the pandemic, I don't know how different it made that process. Once we get past the director's cut, we're having regular meetings with the heads of Marvel, Kevin Feige, Victoria Alonso, Luda Esposito, like they're in the room with us generally a few hours a day, every day, which is nice because there's not like a junior executive who's giving notes. Mm. uh, That's kind of, this is what I think my boss wants. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you literally- And I've gotten those notes. (laughs) I'm sure you all have. Sure. <laughs> but you literally have the head of the company telling you what he wants. And so there's there's no guesswork there. So that's really nice. Where it came to this movie, aside from a couple days during production where the, the powers that be at DC were on location, we, the editors, we didn't really have any interaction with them. James had his own private phone conversations with them after they watched the movie and after the test screenings, but we really weren't involved in it. And James basically gave notes based on his conversations with them. And that's how everything was passed along to us. So it was a different working relationship. And a lot of that just had to do with COVID, maybe. I think so. I I imagine if we had not been in the pandemic, we would have done a screening and then a proper one. And then we would have had a big powwow with the execs. But who knows? I mean, James also is coming on to this movie, having directed two huge Marvel movies and having a very distinct voice. And maybe the powers that be at at DC would have said, look, he knows what he's doing. Let's just leave him alone. As long as it seems like he's not going too far afield. We went pretty crazy. (laughs) There's some (laughs) wild stuff in this movie. Yep, Uh, there is. But uh, it is definitely a singular vision and seems to be working for audiences. So... Yeah, I I gotta give a big shout out to Peter Safran too. He was so instrumental in just keeping our spirits up and he was always so nice and he's like, these cuts are great. You guys work great together. And those little things when you're an editor sitting in a room by yourself six days a week, it's just so nice to hear. And and he was always very complimentary. And at least for me, I'm not speaking for Fred. I heard that he gave Fred no feedback, but he <laughs> he obviously no, no, loved actually, you. No, I'm, in, I'm in, kidding. No, his, his, his general comments were, why can't you be more like Wagner? Hey, um, yeah, stop. there you go. <laughs> No, no, no. He, he was great. And our other producer, Simon, was whenever we had a question for James, we could, we could go straight to Simon and he would get us an answer. It, it, it was a really good team. Yeah, no, Simon was fantastic because there's days with every editor where you need to be talked off a ledge because... <laughs> When you're shooting a movie with that much budget and all that stuff going on, there's going to be days where it gets tense. And Simon always kept his cool, and especially when we got back, because the multi-format way of getting notes from James, they came in on text, they came in on group texts, they came in on emails, they came, and there were many times where I needed to call Simon and get some feedback because Fred was just a genius at it from the beginning. 
But the other thing is where Fred and I really shine together is in the mixing stage. And it, Were you it was, able to go onto the mixing stage? I mean, yes, was COVID yeah. far enough along at that point? Um, Not really, I don't know but if it was we, far enough along. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they had the restrictions no more than six people on the mix stage at a time. One of the things about this process that was changed thanks to the pandemic is we had been editing in 5.1. And then once everybody had to go home, we could only really work in stereo because Pix was only in stereo and that's how James was watching everything. I think at that time, Evercast was only in stereo. So- uh, Well, Teradishi was definitely only in stereo. Yeah, exactly. So you guys were working with Evercast doing that? Not really. As far as the actual editing, we were working with this system called Teradishi. It was in the baby stages and there was a lot of crashes and, and downtime and the technical stuff. And I luckily already had really good internet and Fred had to upgrade it. And we arrived back from Atlanta and moved into a beautiful complex at Warner Brothers. Fred and I both had beautiful rooms. It was a great big building where VFX was going to be right upstairs and music was there and sound effects was there. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for Chris to tell you about my bathroom. No, I'm not going to. No, I'm leaving that alone. <laughs> Just because you had a golden toilet doesn't mean that. that <laughs> no, I think eight days after we got our room set up and we all have like these huge screens and, and Fred had a really big screen and everybody was really happy. They were like, Oh, you're going home. We were like, Oh God. <laughs> and, and then setting up Teradici and struggling through the infancy of that system was just really hard. But uh, I, I, I went from a 75 inch monitor to no third monitor at all. Um, exactly. <laughs> to, to shift Apple F. That's <laughs> oh, wow. right. Uh, but they did take your bathroom and move it from the studio to <laughs> next to your edit room. I, I should have put that in my contract. Um, <laughs> but but my, my point in mentioning all of this is we so we were forced to go to stereo. Therefore, when it came time to screen the movie for the studio and for our test screens, we basically were forced to have to do a temp dub. On the two Guardians movies, when we screened for the studio, it was just straight out of the Avid. But because there was much more delicate work to do that we had not actually been able to do, we did do a proper temp dub. We went onto the stage. It must have been, I don't know, 12 or 14 weeks into the pandemic. This was long before any vaccine was available. So we were all very cautious and properly distanced. One of our mixers, Gary Rizzo, had a mask that didn't connect to his ears because he didn't in any way want to have his ears folded. In, like in, It's mm. something that would impact his work. Listen, the greatest thing is that there was so much camaraderie and laughter and collaboration, and it was a dream experience. To our fantastic to crew of assistants as well. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Well, it must have also been really tricky for the assistants with COVID. I, I believe the last day of the shoot was February 28th. So we were extremely fortunate. We were shut down a week and a half after getting back into the editing room. If the country had shut down at the end of January, when they should have, we, we wouldn't have a finished movie. And we probably would have gotten back to LA and spent a couple months working on what we had and then been forced to shut down until they were able to shoot the remainder of the movie. For the first 
month or so of the shutdown, we were working from home with uh, standalone systems where we had local storage, but it, it meant more work for us and for our assistants because we would send bins of our cuts to our assistants who then had to determine what new media had been created for those cuts, motion effects, that kind of stuff. And then those would have to get asparagus to all of us. And so when they finally switched us to remote systems with Teradici, although there were some difficulties, like having to do all the administrative work, I was grateful for that. I, mean, I was uh, too. And I, I hired the single best assistants in the world, Chris Tonic and Britta Lilla. Uh, yeah. They were both just unscathed. And I'm an editor, I, I'm not a forensic computer scientist. So I was constantly calling Chris Tronic and saying, okay, so what drive do you want to put this on? And how do you want me to open this and close this? And, and he was always so calm and so great. And Britt was too. And it was just a great team. And without them, I certainly would have sunk. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, so. there was not a bad apple in the bunch. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very interesting craft because we don't want to be technical. We want to be storytellers. We want to be creative. But yet we're dealing with technology. So we rely so much on great assistance to keep us just focused on being creative. And the assistants that can take all that off our plate are just gold. And you get spoiled. You get spoiled by that because if you've got great assistance, you got a great VFX editor or an assistant VFX editor, you could say, oh, here, take the shot. But like the film I'm on now, there's none of that. I mean, I have a great assistant, but I find myself having to split screen and animate a lot of shots. Like, Oh, I wish I had this and this and this, but you make the best you can with what you have. Again, the editing crew on Suicide Squad was really phenomenal. Cool. So I wanted to talk about the action scenes because they're just so well edited. I find personally, and I don't know, Chris, you can tell me if, if your process is any different, but putting action together, A, it's something that I really love doing, but it's so much of it is just kind of going with your gut and what feels right and trying different things, especially when we had as many cameras as we had. I'm like, what's going to be the best way to present this? I think having that much footage made you want to use as many angles as you could without it, mm. you know, feeling oppressive. James is actually very against making the image super sharp and almost stuttery feeling. He likes motion blur. So there, there wasn't a lot where we'd speed up a super slow-mo shot that would end up having that angled shutter look. But it was really just a process of feeling our way through the material and what felt best. For me, it's so funny. A lot of people ask how to cut action. And my honest answer is I have no clue. I, I just get footage. And for some reason, I have a gut feeling about it. If it's shot right, then I don't feel any need to add flourishes or stutter cuts or anything like that. If it's a movie where, what is my great saying, Fred? If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, <laughs> you baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> and, and I watch a lot of movies and I find that they're highly overcut. Listen, here's the, the most umbrella statement I can make about editing. You can only paint with the colors that you're given. And what James has given us and what Justin Lin gave us and what other directors have given us have been great paint. It's a wide palette. And if you're given black and white and they say, paint me a Monet, you're like, oh, dude, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> An editor once put it to me like this. If you have a bad hand, it doesn't matter how much you shuffle the deck. You still have a bad hand. Yes. <laughs> like... The Fast Born editing by Chris Rouse is brilliant. And it had nothing to do with the fact that he didn't have the materials because 
he brilliantly knew how to put that footage together and make it work and make it great and non-linear and jump cuts and it was just fantastic but then i watched some movies that are just like highly overcut and they don't need to be and i think that they're trying to fix something that wasn't there so and it was something i was going to bring up about the just gigolo sequence which is that there's a lot of directors who don't feel like their actors will give them the speed that they need so they'll shoot it at 22 and between James and Harley Quinn, they had trust and it was shot at 24 because there's a lot of times people shoot action at 22 just because an actor can't really pull that off. But my <laughs> my feeling about cutting action is just, it's purely a gut thing. Nothing is ever A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's A, H, J. And, it's, you know, I always like to present the director with at least two permeations of a scene. It's not always possible when you have so much film to cut, but I like to try and give an, an alt to look at, too. So An alt for the whole scene or an alt for certain moments? Well, for certain moments. Mm-hmm. Here's a great example. The fight between Rick Flagg and Peacemaker down Br- below. Br- brilliantly cut, by the way. And talking about Chris Rouse, I felt like some of the jump cuts that you were employing when you were cutting that were just terrific. I did that, and I was scared to show it to James because I, I, I've never seen him cut that way. So that was an alt. You know, I cut it kind of regular, and I said, well, what do you think about this kind of boring kind of edit? He thought about it for a while. He's like, yeah, let's put it in. And I was happy about that because I, I get excited about nonlinear editing a lot. That was a sequence. I, Fred, what happened? I, I had to go back to L.A. Fred had seen the dailies for that fight. You stayed, Fred, right? Oh, uh, well, I had a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think your wife did. Yeah, my wife had a baby. <laughs> let's, let's put give credit for it. He, he um, didn't carry it to term, huh? I, I, I remained in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was sent back to L.A. And, and I called him. I said, well, am I going to be okay? He's like, it's an action scene you'll love. And it was great. The best thing about all of this is doing those things and being able to pull Fred into my room and say, is James going to shoot me in the back of the head if I show him this? <laughs> and me knowing that he would. And <laughs> still telling him. Yeah, 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 you should, Chris. <laughs> that sequence in particular, I think, I think you did an amazing job on. I mean, really, that's one of the fun things about this movie is what a wide variety of styles of action there are in it. You get this hand-to-hand born style stuff and then the spectacle sequence that Chris also cut with the top of the tower falling off as our characters oh, wow. are running on the floor trying to get from, from one end of the room to the other. And, and that whole uh, sequence was amazing and I'm just trying to wrap my head around how that was shot and how that was all put together because it's just incredible with the falling of the floors and things like that. I must say that, you know, visual effects have been really coming into prominence for the last, uh, what, 10, 15 years? I've been editing for 40 years, so I, I had to learn a lot when visual effects come in. And when you see in the practical shot, they're making these movements with their legs, and there was no previous for that. So I went to the boards and I realized, oh, she's jumping over a chair that goes by. And, I, and you have to, like, imagine those things. And it takes some forethought and some real thinking when you're looking at the footage and putting it together because you have to imagine what's going to I mean, I, I'm sure it's the same for an actor who's looking at a tennis ball while they're having a dialogue scene because it's all green screen. It's like you have to imagine what's going to be there mm-hmm. in order to cut it. 
knowing was, how long to hold on some of those shots is not an easy task. No, the whole Star Wars thing was Fred sequence, and I don't even think he had a tennis ball. He just had people looking up and looking <laughs> down, and like that was truly amazing. That so, whole sequence. So, so a scene like that, Fred. How how do you sort of determine the timing? You just I mean that, think that about it in your head. Was, or? That sequence was previst, so I did have a map, and you always have the option while you're cutting of using a previst shot just for the purpose of telling the story so the audience will understand what they're looking at. So having the previs was, was really helpful and they did the, the previs with a decent amount of handles so that we were able to use those shots and manipulate them a bit uh, more than they had originally been cut. But there was a lot of improv that happened on set where you've got this group of like 150 soldiers reacting to Starro who's not actually there and James is like, okay, look up at him. Okay, look down here. And you're intercutting it with pieces of previs and the other actors. And eventually it will go to our post-vis department and they'll bring the sequence a little bit more into focus. Sure. Um, and and that'll, that'll help determine if your cuts are the right length or not. And then it, it goes to the visual effects vendor when the whole thing is nailed down and James is, is happy with, with everything. Can I interject for a second? Sure. There are two events that Fred cut that were really amazing to me. One was when Peacemaker goes to all of his guns. He reaches over and pulls the gun from his chest and does that whole thing, Fred. You know what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I know what you're talking about. When, when, and then he's got a sword. and, and uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, Fred, being as talented as he is, he knew to cut at a certain place so that visual effects could extend that gun and pull it out. And there's a lot of timing stuff going on. That one and the other one was when Star was going after Bloodsport and he does that role. Listen, these interviews with Fred are always a love fest because I, I respect him so much and I think he's so talented and it's just a joy to the, watch. The feeling his is edits. definitely mutual. Yeah. And also with that climax, Starro's crashing through buildings. Was that all green screen? <laughs> There's at least one of those shots that's a full CG shot. Literally, there was a point in our editorial process where there was a black screen with white writing on it saying Starro crashes through a building. And, 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 and we added sound effects to give us some sense as to how long it was going to be. So it was a pretty decent approximation. I'm sure when that shot came in, we used the entirety of the handle because it just looked amazing. So it probably got a little longer than it, than it originally was planned for. Talk about the choice to use uh, Stallone as King Shark's voice. How did that come about? It's the voice that James always had in his head. I think he wrote it with Stallone in mind. Uh, Steve Agee, who plays John Economos, one of Amanda Waller's crew at the prison, he played King Shark on set and he was doing his best Sylvester Stallone when delivering the, uh, the lines of dialogue. So it wasn't a huge surprise when James made the call, let's bring Sly in as King Shark. But, but Steve Agee did a terrific job, actually. We kind of fell in love with his Stallone impersonation. And, and I think what lived in the movie for a very long time was we pitched Steve Agee's voice down about 12%. Right. And he, and he sounded so much like Stallone. And I personally, and, and I'll take this one on the chin, I personally fell in love with Steve Agee's dialogue. And we tried a bunch of different actors, and, and I was like, I don't like any of them. And luckily, the budget ran out, and there wasn't enough money to keep me on the film for the very, very end. We had finished the mix and everything, but when they decided to loot Stallone, I, I wasn't around because I had temp love with Steve Agee's voice, and but I... Now that I hear Stallone, it's fantastic. So you it really you is. and Stallone might have come to blows if you were still on the movie? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> 
I might have kind of buzzed with Fred, but now it's still on. <laughs> well, I'm assuming it was in the script as well, but the titles are so creative being part of the environment. Yeah, I mean, that was scripted and that was all shot practically to one degree or another. The three days earlier, written in soap on the toilet seat, that was shot that way and then visual effects enhanced it to make it a little bit more clear what the mm-hmm. writing was. I think the only one that was really changed was the one on the beach where the palm fronds and leaves and debris all spell out the word now. They, they shot it on the beach just saying now, but what's in the movie, the beach is empty and then the leaves and debris blow into frame and spell out the word now. Because the funny thing was, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you didn't quite notice it when it was just a still thing on the beach. Yeah, it was a little dark and, and it kind of blended in with the sand. And I, but I think all the other ones, like Meanwhile Harley and Bring Me the Heads of the Suicide Squad, those were all just photographed on the day. Wow. And even the studio allowing <laughs> Warner Brothers to be spelled out in blood. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrific moment because it really tells you exactly what this movie is. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> if the studio is going to be spelled out in blood, you know what you're getting into. Blood, brains, and hair. And I love the love-hate relationship between Bloodsport and Peacemaker. These characters have basically the exact same backstory. And they do the exact same thing. So they are constantly in competition with one another. <laughs> and so you, you get that really fun sequence when they're in the gorilla camp, slaughtering all these people and, and each <laughs> one trying to one-up the other. It's such a blast. And I mean, and the fact that the cast was really game for it. You get the moment where Bloodsport gives Peacemaker the finger and then Peacemaker responds in a fairly filthy manner that I will not, uh, <laughs> not detail. But, um, and you know that this is not your typical superhero movie when this guy is unclothed from the, the shirt down and gets shot. You're like, okay, this is not <laughs> this is not the Avengers we're watching. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how Disney would respond to something like that. <laughs> Yes, Smiling Coffee Man is always a moment I was fascinated to get to see the audience, (laughs) and they did not disappoint. (laughs) Was there much ad-libbing from the actors? And if so, how do you guys uh, work with ad-libs? Oh, Fred punished me with that scene. (laughs) When I arrived and Fred introduced me to James, I went to the set and they were shooting this scene when King Shark tries to eat Ratcatcher. There was so much improv. So many things to choose from, and we certainly went through that footage with a fine-tooth comb and tried multiple variations of it. But, I mean, it it was fun, and I actually got notes from James. He would write me and say, I'm sorry, Chris, but I want to try something again, and it was a scene that wouldn't quit. One of the things that I think is interesting about James's process is the improv, it's not scripted, but it's also not exactly improv. James will come up with things on set. What if you say this or what if you say that? Exactly. So that basically is how all of the improv happens. And I do think that Cena in particular added to that. Like he would say, I'm going to try something. For the most part, though, it all came from James. And he'd do a series of 18 different versions of something. And uh, Chris, God bless him, had to had to try every single one of them and see, see what was the best. It's funny. You were talking about the frontal nudity of that guy in the gorilla camp. And I reflected back to... The first iteration from visual effects of Weasel walking towards us with a flag behind him. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> Weasel is anatomically correct. <laughs> <laughs> One sequence talking about visual effects that I thought was really clever was that whole rat catcher's backstory when she's talking about her father and you guys are playing the flashbacks in the windows. Was that how it was scripted? That is how it was scripted. I believe that sequence was previs, but that is a rare one where it differs pretty substantially from the previs because the way it was designed was that we would be inside the bus at all times. And most of those flashbacks would be played where Ratcatcher 2 is fairly small in the frame and, and the window is taking up the majority of the frame. So it would be playing like a movie screen behind her. But James shot this gorgeous shot from outside the window with her looking out the window, and I could not use that. We flopped the image on the window and treated it like a reflection. That's a moment that I'm really proud of because you really get the emotion. You get to see her face. Whereas if it was a pure flashback, you wouldn't feel the emotion as much because you're not playing it off of her face at the same time. Yeah. No, I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> James, James had the idea. Um, I, I think it, it came across the, the, the way he ended it. Is there anything that you guys want to talk about that we haven't gotten into that uh, would be fun to mention? <laughs> I think we've talked for longer than the length of the movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think we're good, but... Uh... I, I do have to close this by saying that I am so grateful to Fred for bringing me on because I walked into a cutting room where everybody knew each other and he gave me the growing space to wedge myself in there. So I'm highly thankful. He was kind enough to give me a credit. And um, I, th I think you more than earned that credit. <laughs> Chris really, really came on and, and just fit right in. He is an exceptionally talented editor and ridiculously fast, so much so that it makes me question my decision to work in this industry. And I also have to say, this is something that I remember from us doing Fast Five. It was us and, and Kelly Matsumoto. We cut that movie together. And uh, I remember great. on the mix stage. Yeah, oh, she's terrific. I, I remember on the mix stage, Chris is very attuned to making sure that even in the most intense of action sequences that you have peaks and valleys so that it's not assault. And he brought those same sensibilities to this mix. There's a healthy amount of variety to it. It's not everything played at 12. <laughs> like it's, um... Well, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because people think, let's take it all to 12 and that'll be exciting. And it's the most boring thing because you become desensitized and... Roller coasters don't just go down, <laughs> they exactly. go up and down, <laughs> you know, so. The best thing about Fred and I working together is that our sensibilities and our styles are, are so much the same that when we put all of our scenes together, it doesn't feel like two different editors did the movie. Well, that's, that's huge. It's got to be seamless. The director's key in that, but you guys also have to think alike and have very similar sensibilities. Good point. Well, I love the film. I love talking to you guys. I thought you guys did a brilliant job, and thank you guys so much for oh, uh, joining you. me. Yeah, thank hey. you. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. This is suicide. Well, that's kind of our thing. I'm a superhero!